Well, as you know, life is hard. Uh, Life is challenging. Life is often filled with difficulties. Not every season of life is equally difficult, thankfully. Not every life that's lived will be equally difficult. But difficulty in life is something that we're taught principally in the scripture. And it's something that we're taught personally by experience in this life. You might look at others and from time to time think, boy, sure would be nice to have the relative ease of so-and-so. And when you think that, you're much like Asaph in Psalm 73 was looking at the wicked and saying, man, their eyes are just bulging. They're so fat. They have no pains in their death. Everything is just so easy for them. And then he came and said, you know what? I was actually an unreasoning beast when I was thinking those things. It was a folly to to think that somehow there's a life that exists out there without difficulty. Think of the poet Ovid and his art of love. Uh, even before the time of Christ, had written, the harvest is always richer in another man's field. And uh, that was, of course, the predecessor to what uh, came just 500 years ago, the saying that we're all familiar with, the grass is always greener on the other side. But it was this idea that there's uh, something better for me that I'm missing, and perhaps uh, I'm stuck in this difficulty, uh, unlike everyone else, and therefore I would like to be free from it. The scriptures are very plain that life is difficult. And rather than shying away from that truth, rather than teaching us to avoid the difficulties of life, God instructs us in how we're to approach the difficulties of life. How is it that we face those challenges and those struggles? How is it that we persevere and endure in them? See, the biblical hope is not that you can find relief from difficulty in this present life, but rather that you are to endure in the grace of God, in the grace that he supplies, and then you will receive that relief in the life to come. So we come to our passage this morning. I want to begin to get our minds thinking in the direction of of where this text takes us. And so my question for you this morning is, where do you go in your difficult days. Where do you go in your difficult days? If there were difficulties too generic for you, then what about when you face pressure in life? Where do you turn? What about when you're weighed down by burdens or cares? What about when you're facing a problem or a dilemma or a grief or a sorrow and there's no end to it? There's no solution for it. What about when you're stressed? Or if we were to speak about some of the maybe internal turmoil that begins to manifest itself in difficulty when you're anxious or lonely or fearful or intimidated, or discouraged, or dismayed? What, what is your coping mechanism for dealing with those undesirable and difficult situations that are simply common to the human experience? I don't make an exhaustive list, but it's pretty obvious some of the ungodly ways that we deal with those difficulties. Some of you are venters, so everyone around you knows when you are experiencing difficulty. And now with the internet age, you're able to vent even beyond the people that you interact with to the whole world actually can hear of your venting. Those people are not necessarily a joy to be around when they're going through difficulty. They take their anger out on others, perhaps. You kind of know to stay out of their path in the home when they're facing a difficulty because it's not going to be pleasant if you cross them. Be somebody who complains against the sovereignty of God and in orchestrating their life circumstances. Sometimes in an ungodly response to the difficulty of life, we just seek to be avoiders. So you're the opposite of the mentor. You just avoid the whole thing. Kind of think, man, if I just stick my head in the sand, if I clam up, if I close off other people, if I stuff it, 
then maybe I can just kind of pretend it's not really an issue and avoid it altogether. Some of you, and I would guess many of you, are fixers. I'd kind of put myself in the fixer category. Not that I'm actually ever able to fix it, but I'm at least going to give it a valiant effort. Right? The fixers are either fretting when they don't think they're going to be able to control it, or they're just industrious to try and solve the difficulty and to, to resolve it in their life. Working to create a difficulty-free existence. And sometimes we respond just by, by simply trying to escape the difficulty. You can escape it through a variety of ways. Uh, set up various rewards and pleasures for yourself that you uh, allow yourself to indulge in as, as kind of a, a reward mechanism for going through difficulty. Maybe going into a fantasy land where you imagine things that are difficulty-free and that's kind of your solace or your comfort. Perhaps you turn to some way to numb yourself, whether it's uh, substances or work or some focus that uh, can just kind of distract you from the difficulty. But all of these, and, and there are others too, are ways of responding to difficulty in the flesh. They're ways of, of trying to take that challenge and find a human solution. And all of these indicate some form of idolatry in the heart. All of them represent ways that we naturally gravitate toward when we, we face things in life that are undesirable. And yet God wants you, when you are facing difficulty, to actually be driven to him in worship. He doesn't want you looking for a human solution. He wants you to, to find a solution that only he can provide. He wants to minister to you in a way by, by ministering personally to you and individually to you to strengthen your faith in a way that's completely different than all of those cheap imitations and cheap knockoffs. Well, how does that connect to our passage today? Well, it's interesting because what we're going to find in our passage today is a man who's facing the pressure to begin to, to step back from Christ, to actually pull back from his Christian profession. And if you want to know the, the seedbed that begins to prepare a heart to do that, I'm convinced that it's, it's pursuing these types of idols and not repenting of them. In other words, I'd, I'd say it like this. If, if you are responding poorly to difficulty and you're on a quest for a safe and comfortable life, then what you'll find is that when you are opposed in your obedience to Christ and those things are threatened, you're going to find, man, my convictions are wavering. It leaves you vulnerable to compromise. See, sometimes when I'm lacking courage or I'm lacking a conviction, when I'm saying, okay, I know there's something that, that comes out of my mouth very strongly in one context, and then I'm tempted to shrink and pull back a little bit in another. No, there's something that I've been feeding in my heart. There's some fear, there's some idolatry that's being nursed. But now in the moment that I need a conviction, I'm finding I, I don't have it. There's a weakness. And so what Timothy is facing in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me there now, He's in a spot where he's not compromising, but he's tempted to compromise. And Paul is going to give him a very simple instruction that's going to be a blessing to us in strengthening us when we're lacking courage, when we're needing comfort, when we're facing difficulty. Paul writes to Timothy, this is the last time that he's going to write him a letter, <clears throat> at least that we have a copy of. He says to him in chapter 2, verse 8, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. There's an outline on the back of your worship guide. 
This text breaks down as, as reminders in difficult days. When you face difficult days, you are to remember that Jesus, first and foremost, fuels your endurance in verse 8. Your endurance doesn't come from your own strength. Endurance does not come through a human solution. It comes from Christ himself. Secondly, you're to remember that Jesus compels your allegiance. He's actually worth everything. Not just to live for, but even to die for. And finally, in difficult days, remember that Jesus relieves your fears. He's where you go when you are afraid to find comfort. Paul begins by telling Timothy that Jesus fuels your endurance. He says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Timothy's ministering in Ephesus, and things are difficult there. The ministry road is not going easy, and and more significantly in Timothy's heart and mind right now, it's not just that he's having challenges in Ephesus. But it's actually Paul's situation that's creating such a struggle for him. See, Paul wrote this not in his uh, early prison epistles, like where he wrote Philippians, where he was chained to a guard in house arrest. This is where he's writing now at the end of his final imprisonment. Think about the first imprisonment. If you remember, he wrote to the church at Philippi, and what did he say? I'm actually confident that I'm going to get out, guys. I got a word from the Lord. Lord's still giving words at that time. We're in the apostolic age. He gets a word from the Lord that says, hey, you're going to actually get out of jail free. You're not going to be beheaded. So he's saying, I still have more fruitful ministry ahead of myself. Second Timothy, the tone has changed. Second Timothy, if you look at the end of the chapter, he's saying in chapter 4, verse 6, I am being poured out as a drink offering in the time of my departure has come. He's not talking about departure from prison to be set free. He's talking about departure from this life. The ship is about to set sail. The sun is about to set on the horizon. I'm about to go into eternity, Timothy. This is the last letter you're going to get from me. The time's come. I'm being poured out. Why is Paul about to die? says right here in verse 9, says, I've been preaching the gospel. I've been preaching the gospel and that is for what I am suffering. That's why I'm bound in chains as a criminal. And so you start to think, okay, if Timothy's preaching the gospel, then what's the implication? And I might be next too. I might be down in that maritime prison and In the dungeon in Rome, they would let a prisoner down uh, into really a cavern. And uh, then you would stay in the cavern. It was a holding cell. It was not a prison with a bed. It was not a prison with three square meals. Uh, It was a place that a criminal was put uh, right before they were to either be executed or while they were awaiting their trial in order to be executed. In other words, it was the simplest and cheapest way to store someone in the meantime, while you awaited trial. And so Timothy is is tempted then, of course, because he has pressure around him there in Ephesus in the church, but also from the fact that the man whom he loves, who's poured into him for all of these years in ministry, is now about to depart from the earth because he's preached the gospel. Paul keeps calling to Timothy remembrance. He keeps talking about remembering. He tells him back in chapter 1, verse 3, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience. He's, He's reminding Timothy, Timothy, there's more at stake here than just you and me and my ministry. This is something that our forefathers also gave themselves for. Chapter 1, verse 4, he's he's giving a reminder of his friendship with Timothy. Verse 4 of chapter 1, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. He said, I miss you, buddy. I'm actually crying because I miss you. I want to spend time with you. Again, he's recalling their friendship. 
He's, he's reminding Timothy of his heritage in the Lord. Chapter 1, verse 5, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Timothy, remember? Remember the gospel that grandma taught you? And your mom taught you from the time you were a little boy that you believed? And now as I've ministered with you, I'm confident that you're actually in Christ. So I want you to remember the forefathers. I want you to remember our friendship. I want you to remember your family and your heritage in the Lord of of your gospel profession. And he's going to remind him of his ministry. Verse 6, for this reason I remind you, Timothy, to fan and to flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. And remember your gifting. Remember the calling that you've received. Don't get shaky in it. He even calls him to remember the pattern of his teaching. Verse 13, follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Timothy, you were handed a sacred trust And you must hang on to that. And your job now is to take the baton as I'm letting go of it and putting it in your hand because I'm departing and you're to carry the baton on to the next generation. And in fact, that's exactly what is on Paul's mind. You come to chapter two now and suddenly one of our favorite verses at Approved Workman has new meaning. When he says in chapter 2, verse 2, and what you've heard from me, Timothy, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Why is it so urgent to entrust it to faithful men? Timothy, I'm handing the baton to you, and guess what? You might be next in line behind me, so you'd better be handing the baton on to the next men that can backfill your position if you end up in prison in a short season just like I am. That's why Timothy is struggling right now. And so look at what Paul tells him. Verse 8, Timothy, you remember Jesus Christ. You remember Jesus Christ. I mean, I think about Timothy. Seems like the last person you would need to tell to remember Jesus Christ. I mean, he's the guy when Paul wrote, to the church at Philippi that he said, I actually have a lot of guys, but no one that I can send to you who's going to be so solely consumed with the interests of Christ like Timothy. He's unique in the way that he is consumed with the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right here we we see in chapter 1, he was taught the gospel from an early age by his grandmother and his mother. He was taught the sacred scriptures. So he knows Jesus from childhood. He was raised in the faith. We know that he was a standout among the saints in his devotion to Christ. We know that he hasn't stopped preaching about Jesus. He's regularly shepherding there in Ephesus and he's proclaiming Christ. He's a mature believer. He's a mature shepherd. And yet Paul says, you need to remember Jesus Christ. That's instructive for us. This is not something that you outgrow in the Christian life. You don't mature beyond needing the strength that Jesus gives you. Jesus alone provides this. I mean, the the strength that Paul was telling Timothy he needed to have in chapter 2 verse 1 was to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So it wasn't go be strong and courageous. It wasn't go be the man. It was you be strengthened now in that which God provides by how well through faith. My friends, as I've been meditating on this passage, I can tell you this is so intensely practical. He doesn't go on a long list of all of the things you need to remember about Jesus. He knows that as you recall Christ to mind, when you're facing difficulty, the Spirit of God will begin to connect the truth that you know about his person to your situation. And in that, you find strength. What is it about Jesus? Well, Jesus was faithful in every respect. And Jesus is not dead. He's risen from the dead, Paul says. That means he's alive right now. He is the risen Christ. He is the ever-present Christ. By the offspring of David, he was the promised Messiah. He was the one who came in the flesh. Paul says this was the Christ whom I preached in my gospel. 
So when you are struggling with a difficult situation, Timothy's sitting there saying, man, I know I need to be faithful in the ministry. I know I've believed these things since I was a kid. I know that I've had all kinds of of ministry resources poured into me. I know that I've preached messages better than I can live. And yet I'm finding within me right now, there's a part of me that just wants to shrink back. And I can't seem to get over it. Paul says, remember Jesus Christ. My friends, when you are discouraged, remember Jesus Christ. When you lack boldness and courage, remember Jesus Christ. When you need spiritual strength, remember the strength of Jesus Christ. When opposition begins to get to you, remember Jesus Christ. If you think about all of the ways that this begins to impact your life, say that every situation that you face, when you compare it to the glory of Christ, suddenly withers and lands in its appropriate place. In other words, if you were to take an evil craving that seems to allure you in your heart, that you struggle to say no to, when you begin to meditate on the person of Jesus Christ, you begin to see that for what it is, and it loses its attractiveness. Perhaps you're harboring a sinful attitude. Can't let go of a resentment. Can't let go of harboring something against someone. When you begin to compare that to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and all of the wrongs that he faced as he entrusted himself to the Father's care, when you begin to think about his person and how he has forgiven you, then suddenly you find, although everything within me wants to hang on to that and not let it go, I'm finding within me operative the willingness to obey. Paul says, I want you to remember Jesus Christ. And most notably for Timothy, then the temptation would be to possibly shrink back from Christianity. It's a good question. Are you ever tempted? When are you tempted to shrink back from Christianity? That's not something that we talk about very often. I've yet to drive down the street and see someone holding a giant sign that says, I'm ashamed of the gospel. Right? That's something that you want to kind of keep to yourself. That's the point. Something that you would keep quiet. I was kind of thinking about this this week, and uh, for, for no apparent reason, I was researching uh, how to get newborns to sleep more effectively, and uh, I've, I've read the books, and man, it's been five years, and I don't remember very well, and Susie's kind of sleep deprived, so we're trying to figure it out, and I encountered an article in the New, in the New York Times, and it uh, was saying that uh, since, the, since the back to sleep movement, where you put a baby to sleep on their back, um, you know, parents are told never, never place your baby on their tummy to sleep. And uh, they said, though, there's this dirty little secret that's hidden. And that is that most parents would never want to admit it, but they're secretly putting their children to sleep on their tummy. And uh, so it was this article of confessions of, you know, guilt-ridden, sleep-deprived parents who were resorting to put their children to sleep on their tummy. And the idea was that uh, it's not something that's really socially acceptable to admit, but probably more of us actually do it than are willing to talk about it. And so I was thinking about this text. There are times where, not very often, I would ask myself, is Jesus and the Christian life really worth it? Is the serving really worth it? Is the sacrificing really worth it? Is the suffering really worth it? If you're honest, at some point, at some time, you think to yourself, maybe it would be easier to just throw in the towel. Maybe the juice isn't worth the squeeze. See, sometimes in our faithlessness, we become more focused on a human agenda than God's agenda, and there are doubts and fears that creep in. And so Paul is saying to Timothy, in the fears that he is likely facing, but you wouldn't want to speak openly about, remember Jesus Christ. I want you to go back to the basics here, and I want you to remember the person of Christ and let that strengthen you. That is who fuels your endurance. 
And then Paul shows that this Christ is the one who compels your allegiance. This is our second point. He's the Christ who compels our allegiance. Paul says in verse 9, for which I'm suffering, that's the gospel, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So Paul is compelled. He's compelled to live for Christ and to, as it were, die for Christ. How do we know? Well, why is he in chains? He's not in chains for committing a violent crime. He's not in chains for any reason that someone ought to be locked away in a prison. No, he's suffering because he spoke a message. That was the big problem. He spoke a message. And what was the message? You're a sinner and God came to save you, but he'll only save you if you repent and believe. Does that sound like an awful crime? Does that sound like someone that's a danger to society that must be executed? Because I'm bound just like a murderer would be or a rapist or a thief or an abuser. I'm chained up. See, what Paul is, is telling Timothy is that when you trust in Christ, it is for however he chooses to use your life, whatever he calls you to. He has your allegiance. And so the truth of the matter is that many of us would choose a different setting to be called to than the one that Christ calls us to. I mean, I don't know anyone. I, I don't say in my own life, Lord, Lord, these are the trials that I would ask for myself if I were given a smorgasbord to choose from. This is the hardship and difficulty that I would prefer. No. It's always, Lord, this is, this is your sovereign hand and I exist for your glory and now I submit myself to that by faith. And that allegiance for Paul meant he's in a prison. And so we begin to see what the, what the struggle is here. A little bit of it in Timothy's heart. It's because the gospel elicits such a polarizing response. It elicits such a polarizing response. It either results in this marvelous response of regeneration and new birth. And change. And obedience and faith and love. Or it elicits intense opposition. It awakens something in the human heart that is angering. Think about it. There are sides then to the gospel. There's allegiances to the gospel. You know, when I was a kid, we uh, had a, a Ford Crown Victoria LTD station wagon. For a few of you, that might mean something. Had a sweet blue pinstripe down the side. And uh, I'm pretty sure we had it because it fit the budget and it fit the bill, right? There was a lot of seats that you had in one vehicle. We needed a lot of seats. And so we had a Ford Crown Victoria station wagon. Now, what I didn't know was that there were sides when it came to American car loyalties. And so I remember one time I was in church and this man approached me and he said, you've got a Ford. You know what that means, right? Fix or repair daily. And, um, and I was like, okay, whatever. You know, like I, I didn't understand that if you're a Chevy guy, you know, you need to kind of belittle the Ford owners in the congregation. That wasn't something that I was too familiar with because we didn't really have those allegiances in our house. But there certainly were, there's those types of allegiances that at least existed historically. And that's, that's very unique, right? I, I have yet to um, be in the grocery store and have two people debating over which brand of rice is the best or which brand of brown sugar, right? It's, it's not that important to us. And yet when the gospel goes forth, there's winners and losers. It's instantly polarizing. See, some people hear the gospel and they say, that is the power of God and it is salvation. I want God and I would be willing to die for that gospel. And other people hear that message and they say, that is a toxic message that must be silenced and I would kill someone to stop it. See, that's why Paul's in prison right now. And so you see the connection now between how you respond to the everyday difficulties in your life 
and how faithfully you will stand for Christ when it costs you something. If you look back at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, with all of this in mind, you hear Paul pleading with Timothy, saying, because you've been given a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control, verse 8, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Paul commends Onesphorus. Verse 16, may the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. The word for ashamed here is to experience a painful feeling or a sense of loss of status because of some particular event or activity. How many friends did Paul say were there with him in prison? In Timothy 4, he's saying, I got deserted. I got deserted. People came and visited me when I was on house arrest, but when there was a chance that you were going to get thrown down in the hole too? No. And so what we see is that Paul's imprisonment on the one hand meant courage for some. And in Philippians 1, he said that when he was chained in the gospel, there were those that said, I'm now galvanized and I'm ready to stand firm for Christ. That lit something in my heart. I'm ready to be even more bold with the gospel because of what I see. Yet we see that there's also another response, which is, man, I see that imprisonment and it's causing me to shrink back in fear. It's causing me to find the path of least resistance. It's causing me to be silent when speaking would cost me something. When you think about the gospel message, it's not every detail of the gospel that will cost you something. It's not every detail of the gospel that is offensive. Right now, in fact, you could for the most part say, uh, Jesus is love and he accepts sinners. And probably, probably you're not going to have too many people be angry with you for saying that. And that is part of the gospel. That is true. But if you begin to say, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do you say, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God? Well, now you're entering into, you're waiting into a place that is going to begin to be costly. And friends, when you think of the gospel message, it is at the key point that it is uh, the most distasteful and shameful for society that the testing point is. And so Paul's saying, don't be ashamed. I know the temptation, Timothy. In fact, Paul would pray or ask the church to pray for him that he would have boldness to proclaim the gospel as he ought. He asked for that twice in his letters. It is an issue that is common to man, the temptation to shrink back. If you're to think about Timothy, he did stand firm in the grace of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 13 says that he got let out of prison. The only way you get let out of prison is if you first get put in prison. And Timothy didn't get put in prison because he was a lawbreaker. He got put in prison because he was faithful to the gospel. Now, of course, the state wants to, at times, silence the message of the gospel. And so the mindset's pretty simple. You stop the people who are talking about the gospel from talking about it, and you will stop the progress of the gospel. But guess what? That strategy is not effective. What's Paul say? But the word of God is not imprisoned. I mean, you can almost just, just hear him. He's, he's like, ha, 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 ha. I'm, I'm sitting here in chains. I can't get out. I'm going to die. The time of my departure has come. But guess what? God's word is still going forth. It's going forth with or without me. It's continuing to multiply. I heard just this uh, past week is... Uh, James Coates, the pastor who's in prison in Canada, is there that he's already uh, received the nickname of the preacher. Um, because obviously you put a preacher in prison and what do they do? They have a new mission field. They have a new opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul is saying that the ministry is going to keep going. It's going to keep happening whether I'm a part of it or not. But look at his mindset here. 
I want you to see his allegiance. Verse 10, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Right here you have God's sovereignty and man's human responsibility side by side. He's talking about the chosen. That's the elect. That's the people who God has, has marked out to be his own. Not of anything that they've done, but simply by his own sovereign will for the sake of the elect, the sake of the chosen. It's undeniable in the grammar. It's what it means. Well, how do they get saved? Well, it's through laborers. It's through a a harvest that is plentiful, but needs laborers to go and actually harvest the crop. That's why we pray for laborers for the harvest, because you need laborers. So Paul would say in Romans 10, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? Paul's saying that he endures everything for the sake of God's chosen people. Why? Well, in order that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. See, Paul had a commitment to the eternal well-being of other people that brings me up short. He's saying, I I want to see others obtain eternal glory. I meet people and I think of them as eternal souls that came into existence that will spend all of eternity either with Christ in glory or apart from him in judgment and condemnation. And I am compelled to suffer whatever I have to suffer. I'm willing to do anything for the sake of the elect. And I'm thinking back to that difficulty-free existence. I'm thinking, man, I get, I get to the end of the shopping trip at Costco. And I'm sizing up the check stands to see which checker is the fastest so that I don't have to spend any more time in line than I would possibly need to. That's how soft and convenience-driven I am. That's just one example. We could go on all day with those. And yet Paul is saying, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. Why? Because I actually think about the souls of other people and it compels my life. It orders my life. It orders my speaking. It orders my priorities. It orders my prayer life. Because I want to see other people obtain eternal glory with Jesus Christ. He's burdened by the eternal destiny of others. And so for Paul, he is is compelled by the allegiance of Jesus Christ, and he's reminding Timothy, Timothy, your allegiance is to Christ. Wherever it is that he has you, I can tell you this, Timothy, from my own experience, and I'm a testimony of that, that if you faithfully preach the gospel when it is out of season, it will begin to cost you something. But guess what? Christ is worth it, and it's also the means by which other people are going to be saved, and that is worth it. about this. This is a willingness to speak the gospel truth, even when it costs you something for the sake that God might use that to save someone who needs to be saved. Well, if you're like me, you get this far in the sermon and you think, I've got, I've got some, some things to gulp down here. This testimony exposes things in my heart. It exposes unfaithfulness. It exposes fears I don't want to talk about. It exposes idolatries. And so likely, Timothy was probably experiencing on some level some of the same realities in his own soul. And Paul encourages him that Christ then relieves your fears. Even of your own faithfulness. Look at verse 11. This saying is trustworthy. Everything that Paul says is, is true when he says it in Scripture. But he's, he says this saying, so this moniker, It's like a jingle or a hymn or a a catechism answer. It's something that you could memorize here. This is the saying it's trustworthy for. If we've died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Paul saying, Timothy, I told you to remember your elder brother, Jesus Christ. And I want you now to think about the fact that he is ever faithful and he will bring you 
to glory. When you're getting weary, when you're feeling the pressure to remain steadfast in the truth, here's a little poem for you. And so you begin to get the sobriety of Timothy's crisis at this moment. If we've died with him, we will also live with him. Timothy, you don't have to fear death. If you've been buried with him in baptism, if you renounce the old life and trusted in Christ, you're going to live forever with him. You can have an open hand to this life. It can be easy come, easy go, because you know you get to be with him forever. Weigh it out. Consider it in that way. Verse 12. Verse 12, endurance. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Now he's talking about if you remain under whatever it is that he's given you, if you remain under that difficulty, one day you're going to get a reign with him in glory. What do you think about that? Paul, Paul is at the dregs of society right now. No one cares when you're in the bottom of a dungeon. Perhaps four million people lived in the city of Rome at that time. And he's in a back dank corner. And you know what he's thinking? Man, after I die, I just, I just continue to endure here. I remain under this. And one day I'm going to be reigning with Christ in glory. That's the eyes of faith. He puts one warning in the passage. In this little jingle, in this little song that could be memorized, he says, then if we deny him, he also will deny us. See what Paul's doing here is he's, he's clarifying the theology for Timothy. And he's saying, Timothy, I understand your weakness. I understand that you're going to fail in these things. I understand that um, endurance is difficult and at times you're going to shrink back. But apostatizing is something different. The open denial of Christ is something different. It's interesting, of course, we have a strong view of God's salvation that it is all by grace alone and that those whom he saves, he will preserve until the end. That once you are saved, that if you belong to him, that can never be undone. It's irreversible. It's irrevocable. Once your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, it's with indelible ink and it can never be erased. It can never be washed away. That page could never be torn out. A denier is someone who departs from us because they were never really of us. It's always a grief when you see this. It's been amazing to me if you watch well-known Christian authors and speakers who begin to become ashamed of the points of truth that are most shameful right now in society and you begin to watch them drift and at some point eventually they will, in fact, deny the exclusive substitutionary atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not right away, but that is where they end up. And so Paul is, is reminding Timothy, Timothy, anyone who denies Christ will be denied by Christ. Jesus himself said in Mark 8.38, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. What's he saying? Well, if you deny Christ in this life, then when he returns, it's going to be exposed that you're not his. People who belong to Jesus don't deny him ultimately. Well, what happens if you falter in that? Have you ever denied Jesus? Sure you have. Sure you have. Peter has. I have. Faithful Christians throughout the centuries have. But what happens? Well, then you repent. And you profess your allegiance to him. And right here he's, he's telling Timothy that the, the temporary or momentary denial is different than turning your back on Christ. Because verse 13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Literally, if we are unbelieving, if we don't trust him, if we don't rely upon him, if we are unfaithful to him, he still remains faithful. Faithful. This is the same word in John 15 for abiding in Christ. We're told to abide, to remain in him. Here Paul's saying that he is going to remain. He is going to endure with you even if you don't endure with him. When I fear my faith will fail, who will hold me fast? It's Christ 
I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. Fast. I was thinking about an example of someone who didn't ultimately deny Christ, but wavered in unbelief. And of course, anytime you talk about that, the first guy that comes to mind is Thomas Cranmer. Thomas Cranmer was an archbishop in Church of England, and he had uh, stood there in the early days of the Reformation uh, over against the heresies in the Roman Catholic Church. He'd uh, really been very bold with the truth, and then as uh, Mary came into power there, uh, the time shifted very, very quickly. And uh, Cranmer was weakened over time because although he had great resolve, he had to to spend months in prison, and as he would, he'd have daily pressure from his captors uh, with the imminent threat of being burned alive. So every day you wake up and this is what you're facing. And he began to weaken, and eventually his enemies coerced him to sign several documents renouncing the Christian faith. Well, then later the people gathered to come and and see him and uh, see his reaction because it was a big deal that Cranmer had finally renounced the faith. Uh, This was kind of a trophy, if you were, for Queen Mary. And so Thomas Cranmer, as history records, was brought to University Church in 1556. He was in tattered clothing. He was weary and broken. Uh, He was degraded and he came up into the pulpit. Uh, He'd been given what to say. So he had the the paper of what to say and it was his public renunciation and he was to speak it before all of the people. So the audience was there. It was a packed house. Everyone was eager to hear Cranmer renounce the faith. And in the middle of his speech, Cranmer deviated from the script and he recanted his earlier recantation. This is what he said to everyone in the room who was absolutely shocked. He said, I came to the great thing that troubles my conscience more than anything I have ever said or did in my life. And that is the setting abroad of writings contrary to the truth, which here now I renounce and refuse as things written with my hand, which were contrary to the truth which I thought in my heart written for fear of death and to save my life. Why was his conscience stricken? Because he knew that those who wish to save their life are going to lose it. But those who lose their life for Christ's sake will in fact find it. So Cranmer then, chaos of course ensued and everyone was scrambling to figure out what was happening. He uh, got in a little note there that the Pope was uh, the Antichrist and made a comment about his false doctrine. Months later, he was burned at the stake and true to his word, history records that Cranmer thrust his right hand into the flames so that it might be destroyed first. When he died, he had the words of Stephen on his lips saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. I see the heavens open and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. My friends, we are fearful people. We are a faithless people. Times we get ashamed of the gospel that we hold so dear. And yet we have a promise here that even if we are faithless, he remains faithful. And Paul says, for he cannot deny himself. He cannot deny himself. The word in the original is the word for power, dunamis. He's incapable of denying himself. And so Christ bringing you to glory is not based upon your performance. It's not based upon your own character and how faithful you are to these things. But literally it is on the basis of his own perfections. Samuel Rutherford, reflecting on this, said, often and often I have in my folly torn up my copy of God's covenant with me. He's saying by his sin. He's saying I've professed allegiance. I have this covenant love and faithfulness. Often I've ripped it up. But he said, blessed be his name. He keeps it in heaven safe. And he stands by it always. 
Jesus promises that he won't go anywhere because he is committed to saving those who are his. Hebrews 7.25, Wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we love you and we love the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we affirm with Peter, where else can we go? For you have the words of eternal life. Lord, for everyone in the room who's in Christ, we have professed that you are our all and all. And yet, Lord, there's a part of even as we say that, we know that uh, we struggle to believe it when it's tested. Father, I pray that you would strengthen us as your people. Lord, you work marvelous things through those who are bold and courageous in the truth. Lord, it's compelling to a watching world uh, to see people speak, not, not in arrogance or in hubris, but in humility and courage. Lord, to be unashamed and unapologetic with the truth. Father, I pray that each of us would be salt and light. Lord, in whatever sphere and context you've given us, for those who, Lord, are lacking in courage, give them strength and boldness. For those who are fearful and ashamed, I pray that, uh, Lord, they would walk in the light. Father, that is your people, we might see that these things are linked to your glory. Because we desire your glory, this is, this is a small price to pay. Thank you so much for your faithfulness. Thank you that uh, we can bank on that. Lord, the hope that that provides, the confidence and the security that we lay our head on the pillow each night at the end of each day, knowing that there will be mercy anew when we awake in the morning. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. We have an opportunity now <clears throat> uh, to remember Christ as we sing. Um, we can sing in worship uh, on Christ the solid rock I stand. We can also sing to ourselves to remind ourselves and sing to one another to exhort and encourage. Um, we're going to repeat verse 4, which is, is not normally done.